0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Claywell, your host. And with me today, your co-host, Lou Hey, Why? Hey, Sean. Hey. hey, how you doing? I'm not doing too bad. You know, the weekend is here, so play, you know, good. hockey season has started for me. So I'm getting out and getting some exercise and playing some hockey. So I'm enjoying it.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah. All right. cool. cool. Let's bring in a guest. Today, we welcome Martin Costello. Welcome, Martin.
1: Hi, guys. How are you doing yeah. today?
0: Pretty good. Pretty good. So uh, why don't you kind of give us the introduction to and know about you, I guess, Uh, kind of how you got into development and then then how you got into .NET and then kind of what you do currently.
1: Sure. So um, my name is Martin Costello. I'm a senior engineer at JustEatTakeaway.com, which is like an online food delivery marketplace system. It operates in the US, Canada, Europe. And Australia and New Zealand. And I've. Like an Uber Eats competitor type thing? Kind of similar. It's not, not quite the same, whereas we also include what we call Marketplace. So that's like your local takeaway. They can list themselves on our platform and they might do the delivery themselves. Or you could go to the restaurant and pick up the food yourself. So it's also like a convenient way for a restaurant to not have to worry about e-commerce they can list themselves on the platform and we'll provide them with like a a device they can put in the restaurant and the orders come through to them and then um, our consumers can sort of order on the ios app the android app the website and then we handle the payments we send the order through to the restaurant and then they do what they're good at which is cooking the food and then in some cases we also provide like couriers to take the foods from the restaurant to the customer. But in other cases they might do that themselves because they already have their own uh, courier drivers or something like that. So see, I've been in the software development industry now for about 15 years. And um, I started fresh out of university where I didn't do computer science or anything like that. I did um, physics, astrophysics. And it was just before like the um, the credit crunch happened. So it was when um, graduate jobs was still a thing you could easily find in the job market when you came out of university, and I just sort of ambled into a job as a software tester. And the only coding I'd done previous to that was I did a little bit of a Visual Basic when I was um, secondary school, and then I did it, uh, and then I copied the Noughts and Crosses Tic Tac Toe game I made at that, and then I ported it into C for a module during my degree. And it was terrible. Like I still have the code, and occasionally, if I fancy feeling better about myself, I just look at it and go, "Wow, what, what rubbish that was! <laughs> I would never write something like that now." And um, but otherwise, that was the I, only coding I, I'd I do. Done.
0: That to my code that I wrote six months ago. <laughs> <It's>
1: like, <laughs> I know, but it's a really easy <laughs> way to feel better if you go back twenty years. Yep. And but yeah, so I was, so that was the only real coding I'd done, and. I was a software tester, and I got. I was working on some software that was to do with address validation, which is very niche, but also very complicated. And the company I worked for at the time, the auto, there wasn't much automation, so it was like write some bat files and run some files through this processor, and then diff the results and things like that. And the QA lead I had at the time, he'd written a tool to try and automate all of that. And it was like a Windows form app written in this language I'd never heard of be- before called C Sharp. And then made my life a lot easier Him writing this tool for me so I could get all the menial tasks done a bit quicker. And then after my first project, I was like made the lead. Well, I say the lead. I was the only person working on this project. It was quite a small project that was just myself working on it but it was a totally different product so there was no this automation didn't exist so I was like I spoke to my QA lead at the time I was like could I just like take this code and like make it work for this other product and he was like sure I'm sure you can do that but I'm busy doing this other stuff so you need to work it out for yourself if you want to do it so I started getting into C Sharp and I think it was .NET Framework 2 at the time that's how long ago it was and it was like copying the whole project and then just renaming it i came up with the name first (laughs) and then sort of picking my way through it trying to make it work by looking at the api manual for the different product and trying to make it work and then hitting like lots of the beginner things with c sharp they would go why does this say i need an instance of this why can't i just call this method and just getting this whole mess of static and instant space code and things like that and then over the next nine years well not nine years it was more like six years of being a QA at my previous job it's just sort of learning more and more C-sharp as I went along writing automation to sort of make my life easier and the life of other people in the QA team's life easier and then because I started to get quite technical, I got put onto a team working on one of our e-commerce products where there was only budget for one QA rather than two, and they needed to be quite technical so they could write integration tests to call the API and test it worked and things like that. So they put me on it. And like when you're like filing bugs and stuff and you've got Jira or whatever system, and it's like, you write the bug up and then the developer looks at the bug and then the developer might fix it when it gets to the top of the prioritization and stuff like that. And when I would find really simple bugs, I'd be like, why can't I just change that myself in the source control system and fix it? Because otherwise it will never get prioritized and like something like a typo or something like that. And over time through that, they're like, Martin, you're writing so much product code and fixing the bugs in it and writing the unit tests and doing all this stuff. It's going to make you a developer now. We're just going to move you from QA into development. And then I did about 18 months of being a developer at that company. And then I moved to just Eat takeaway.com from there. Or it used to be JustEat, but now we've joined with Takeaway.com. So we're one bigger, even longer named company now. And that was just before .NET Core was launched. And then I sort of like p- picked picked it up and started looking into it and it first came out when it was in like the previews and then sort of from there i've become very dotnet core advocate and dotnet advocate over dotnet framework and part of the reason for that is just with my qa background it's just so much easier to test the applications you're working on in the way you would use them whereas in dotnet framework world you're like oh i need to know somehow configure my local tests to integrate into iis express or into iis and things like that and suddenly it would be a lot harder and not as reliable to write tests against and get a good like in a development loop going and feedback on what you were working on so it's kind of sort of sucked me in as it were from it being a lot cleaner and nicer to work with over .NET Framework and then I've just sort of absorbed and learned about all the different parts of mainly the ASP.NET course at the end of the stack rather than say WPF and things like that and most of my day-to-day job is working on uh, either APIs or ASP.NET core uh, websites and infrastructure to do with those things and also um, Lambda functions also written in .NET so Mostly .NET, sometimes I do a bit of HTML and TypeScripts or JavaScripts and I really try and keep away from CSS because I'm one of those developers that's just, why isn't this in the middle of the screen? <laughs> I can just about manage bold italics and changing the colors and then that's about the limits of my abilities.
0: Yeah, so I, I think our main topic for today was was going to be talking about testing and things like that. So, you know, there's different types of testing. And there's unit tests, there's functional tests, there's integration tests, all sorts of different types of tests. And everybody's also got a different definition of them. So can you kind of give us the, the high-level thing of testing and what kind of tests there are and how you defined each one of those? And then we can go into that.
1: Sure. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost like um, testing talk bingo. It's like mention mentioned the test pyramid. So um, it's like... The, the main types of test I think about in my day-to-day work is we've got unit tests, integration tests, and then end-to-end tests is of the daily parlance we use in my team, where unit test is like, we're going to take a class or maybe just a method if it's something super simple, you know, like classic calculator territory, please add these numbers together. And that's where we're going to use a test framework, like say XUnit. And we're going to put some inputs and test for some outputs on that class. Some people think of it more like as, as a functional unit, which you can also do that with XUnit because sometimes I say to people, XUnit or NUnit or MS Test, they're not unit test frameworks. They're test frameworks. They just help you write tests. It doesn't matter what style of test it is. Or how much of your stack, or what level of the stack is testing? It's just a tool to help you do the testing, and then the level above that is what I term integration tests. Some people might call them system tests. To me, they are using the application in the way the user would use an application, and like treating it like a black box. So if it's like an API, I'd spin up the API and I would talk HTTP to that API. So I'd doing gets and posts to it so for example i don't know classic to-do app example i'd do a post to create a to-do item and then i would verify that worked by calling the get endpoint and getting the to-do back and checking that the api says that the to-do i asked it to make matches what i asked it to do and then end-to-end test is like at the top of the three-layer test pyramid i've sort of articulating which is where you deploy all the code into your product not, sorry, not your production environment. Don't do that first. <laughs> Put the code into your development environment of choice, whether that's AWS, your Google Cloud or whatever. And you do the same sort of things you would be doing with your integration tests, but with the whole deployed system and any other systems that I might talk to. Whereas at the integration test layer, I would almost always not mock as in MOQ or Rhino mocks, mocks, but I would... Mock or stub out anything external that's off the local machine or that would introduce test unreliability from like environmental differences so that you're just dealing with what the application does and you can fake anything that it's talking out to externally. So, one way I like to think about with integration tests, although you wouldn't do this, especially because you wouldn't be able to stack overflow search for any of your coding answers. It's almost like they're the type of test you can pull the the network cable out of your dev box and your app that talks to other services. It would still work because it's not really talking to those other services. So I don't know if we, if if this wasn't pandemic times and we could sit on planes with our laptops and do coding, you you'd still be able to do meaningful sort of not tests above a, a unit test layer. Without having network connectivity and other things to talk to,
0: yeah, I think that's like chaos testing or something like that, where you just go around and start pulling <laughs> wires and plugs and trying to break things. You know, I think I think that's a thing that Netflix really started doing. You know, oh yeah, they, the they um, chaos you, you, monkey, you, you, yeah,
1: it's one of those things. Never quite reached the point where you're actually brave enough to um, let that sort of thing run amok. In an AWS account and or in a production <laughs> environment.
0: So how do you get started with the integration tests? You know, if that's what we're gonna we're gonna focus mainly on that today. So what's the main thing to know in how to get started?
1: So the main thing that I sort of cause like you have classical test driven development where it's like let's write all the tests and then all everything will break and then we'll write code until the tests pass. Personally, I can't quite do that because like if I haven't written any code yet, it's not even going to compile, let alone the test fail. And I just, it's just too, it's just too far in that direction for me. So what I usually do is I'll have written, I don't know, finger in the air, so eighty like percent of the logic. Like I wouldn't have maybe gone down the edge cases, but if I was writing like a CRUD app, I'd have done like the post and the get and stood it up and done a bit of F five debugging if you're using visual studio to see um i think i've done the minimum amount of dev here and then at that point i'd switch to my test project and then start looking at writing my tests i personally i use xunit but like sort of using http client and things like that to talk to it but that's where you have like well it's tricky to start just firing up the test server all the time as part of the test so i think a really good thing if you're doing asp.net core that you can use is there's a NuGet package they provide which is microsoft.asp.netcore.mvc.testing and it contains a component called the uh, web application factory and what that does is it sort of knows about how to set up like the folder where all your view files are if you're doing razor and the dependencies and things like that and it hooks into another component which is part, which is related to the Kestrel server, which is called Test Server, and what that does is it sort of runs your application in memory. So instead of it be actually listening on a HTTP port, it sort of it's all hosted in memory. And when you do networking calls, they don't really go over the network because it uses a special kind of HTTP client where that's sort of just it sort of plumbing the client to the server directly together in memory and. Sort of first thing is to get that sort of setup done so that you get faster feedback and you can easily start up the application that you're trying to test. And the other benefit that Web Application Factory gives you is it can also give you access to your dependency injection container. So if you've got things like Entity Framework Database plugged in, or you've got your configuration doing http client calls off to something where you need to you can tweak the the like the application's configuration the dependency injector injection setup so that you can swap out dependencies and then that's the bit that gives you the power so that you can go I know you really want to talk to this SQL server that's on this other server over here in the cloud but instead could can you use this connection string and then you can potentially give it like the connection string for like a SQLite database or SQL server um, local DB or something like that. And then suddenly you you don't have to worry about, oh, I ran this test. And then the second time I ran it, the data was in the database now. So my test failed because there was already some data in the database and stuff like that. And it means you can easily, or relatively easily sort of clean set up and tear down in between your tests and then that gives you more reliability in, and repeatability in sort of validating that your code works and trying to get away from the old flaky tests where you like push up your change into your like CI system and then it fails and then you're like, why did that fail? I didn't even touch that and then you just press the rerun button until it goes green and then you're like, yep, it's all sorted now. Do, do you have any advice
2: actually about like how long a test should run for before it becomes... Like, just taking too long, basically? Oh, that's a good question. you know, question. the cleanup the stuff does take a
1: long time, some time, you know? So, I think, I genuinely, I think, like, the true answer would depend on your use cases and what your code really does, because, like, if you're doing, if the underlying thing you're testing takes 30 seconds, then maybe you're not going to notice... Okay, sure if you've got hundreds of tests it's all gonna add up, but you're maybe not gonna notice a half a second setup and teardown at the end. Mm. Whereas if you if you're if what you're testing takes a couple of milliseconds, then yeah, you probably don't want one second, two seconds set up and tear down times around it. I think we had this problem with some test suites at my old job actually, like we set up a load of tests where we'd stubbed out the database and then we had like a handful of tests and they were really useful and then the tests suite got bigger over time and then it was like why are these tests so slow why do they take several minutes to run and it was because it was spending two seconds per test creating a database mm. deleting it again so with that we sort of refactored things so it was more where the presence of other data the test wasn't sensitive to it we like had a shared fixture that the te- the test would reuse so we just paid the setup test uh, the setup cost once, but then if we had tests where it was important that the database was empty at the start, or it had specific data in it, they'd have custom uh, fixtures, and then we like our test run. We managed to like shave like five minutes off it just by refactoring it a little bit. But yeah, I think this. I think the sweet spot for me with a set of tests, whatever level of the test pyramid is at. I'd say about a minute is my upper limit, because once you've got past a minute, then if you want to rerun all the tests to be confident in whatever it is you've just done locally, you start getting into the the point where your mind starts to wander. And then you're like, oh, I'll just check that email. I'll just look at this thing in Stack Overflow that I want to look up. Oh, I'll just look at Twitter on my phone while this runs. And then you start not being as productive anymore. So yeah, yeah, there's like this sort of sweet spot of how long is too long, but I think it's always going to be a factor of that is going to be how much feedback you get from the test, how many tests you're you're running, and what your product Probably does. Also
2: depending on um when you run the test, like some some tests I'm guessing you run on every compile or every time you commit or whatever. Some tests you might run on every time you you know you have a pull request, and then some tests you might just run nightly kind of thing, and the nightly ones they can run oh yeah it take an hour if they want to you know? <laughs>
1: yeah because I, th- I think i've noticed that from doing uh, contributions to uh, some of the .NET repos is like if you do a pull request to ASP.NET Core it takes about an hour for all the github statuses oh. to go green because it's it's building it on like four OSs and then it's testing it on four os's mm. and then it does some some other stuff and then it all aggregates together but then they also have a nightly run that tests it on even more operating systems and it's just like wow mm. that must just take a very long time to get if you if you if you're a developer on the project full-time and you've made quite a sweeping change like you're talking yeah. like over a day <laughs> to know that you haven't broken something <laughs> yep oh you missed this column there, that. <laughs> yeah
2: because
1: yeah. like i know one of, i guess i'm mostly use visual studio over visual studio code or rider or something like that and it has a feature now for like to automatically run your tests when you've compiled but most of the projects i work on the suites take one or two minutes to run and it's just like you're constantly i'm also one of those people who's like i don't know probably like being doing my homework on Microsoft Word in the, like the late 90s, just constantly Control S, Control S, Control S, control S not trusting <laughs> it to not lose your work. And None of my keyboards have an S key. Well, you, you can't. Not the S etching. You can't see it after a period of time. <laughs> but I just, I was just constantly interrupting the test run because I'm just typing a little bit more and doing a little more. So I ended up having to turn that off. So yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I think often or like sort of work up like if i'm changing a class i'll run the unit test related to that and then when i think i'm done all of the repos my team have a work we have just like have a build script in the root of the git repo and i just open up a term terminal and i just go build.ps1 enter and then it compiles it and runs it all and then if i'm if that doesn't uh, crap out or the um, the test coverage is rubbish or whatever then um, then that's when i push it up and maybe do a PR rather than trying to get into the whole um, CI feedback loop of, oh, just throw it up to CI and see if it fails and then try and work out why it failed if it did. Because it's it's not the most productive to try and rely on the CI system to do it because those tests that don't work in CI but work locally, it's just stuff of nightmares.
0: So you talked about integration tests with APIs. Is that the only thing you can do you know, use integration tests for as APIs? Can you can you do a web application or a desktop application or anything like that?
1: So, I, yeah, I also use it for um, this approach for web applications. So with, say, a Razor, Razor Pages or MVC app, and like, even if it's got rich JavaScript, with ASP.NET Core. You can. Um, the trick to that is because if you use the vanilla test server, there's no real HTTP port there. So you could write a test using HTTP client and you could get the HTML of the page back and then you'd be getting into gnarly HTML parsing. But you can't use a tool like Selenium with it because there's nowhere for the browser to talk to to get the pages. So an approach I've used with that is to sort of wrap web application factories so you get like the the niceties of the DI system and finding your Razor files and things like that. And also like your static content if your CSS and JavaScript. But then exposing that on a real HTTP port because then you've got something that a browser can talk to. And now you can integration test your rich web application with like, you need to click that is you need to test that if i click this button this happens or if i log in this happens and extending it slightly to use a real http server then means that you can also use it for your ui and web applications as well and we use that extensively in my team to test the the sort of the web stack part of the sort of the vertical slice of the platform that my team work on so but Ultimately, when you get into web application, you're still starting to get into the whole UI testing is slower and more brittle than the lower level of testing. So we we try and focus the tests more like the headless lower level. Um, headless, maybe not the right word, but um, not having the browser in play because you end up with that having to do wait until the button is enabled, wait until this is on the screen, wait until that, and then that can sort of slow your flow down. But you can definitely use this sort of approach for a, um, a web application, not just like an API that's doing JSON or XML or whatever other flavor of markup you want to play with this week. But I would imagine you probably can do it with a desktop application, but that's not really something I work on so it's not something I've tried to do in anger but I'm sure there's the smart people out there who've solved that particular nut.
0: So what are some things you shouldn't try to do with integration tests you know some gotchas some watch things to watch out for?
1: So one thing that we already brought up was the whole having too much time spent in your test like you're all set up and tear down time because you're going to get to the Point where if your test suites take too long people might stop running them and if you're not running them they're not really giving you any value the other the other trap that you can sometimes fall into that i've definitely fallen into from time to time as well is asserting on too much so if you're writing a test uh, oh um get resource foo from the api and then if there's lots of edge cases in your logic and then you're like Oh, and test it does that and test it does that and test it does that and does this do that and then suddenly you've got a test that does one get and has like a hundred asserts. And like you put isn't there like a basically like a purest view that you should only,
2: you should only have one assert per test? So do you do you follow that belief or do it's not not a hundred, but I
1: can I can I can, see, I can see the value in it, but I think it's just the one is a bit too extreme because in my experience it leads to test suites where like all of the tests are they get shoved into constructors and things like that, so that when the tests run, they're actually just asserting on a property that a magic constructor somewhere set. And then, if you just want to test, to tweak the test behavior slightly, then you need to make another class that derives from that class and tweak something. And then you need to oh, but I can't change that bit. And then you people end up writing virtual methods to tweak the behavior, and then it just turns into this horrible hierarchy of nested classes so i think if there were better patterns in .NET to tackle that Mm. then i think it would it would work nicely but i think at least in my experience the way i've seen people try to implement that it just sure if you break one thing and one thing only in like a thousand tests one test will fail and you'll just know that that's the one thing you've broken but then you get the maintenance nightmare of actually trying to keep that test suite in shape but being easy enough to change. I feel like when your business requirements change you need to tweak something and it's like oh now this common facet of these 300 tests are all related to this base class that doesn't apply to everything anymore and now all my tests are broken but they're not broken broken it's just I've changed the requirements and now I've got to refactor half of my test suite to account for the change in the business requirements. So I think Definitely try and keep the asserts small. But at the same time, I dislike when you like have, like, like, say, five test methods and they're all the same and they're just doing one slightly different assertion. But then if you break something really fundamentally, then all the tests break, but they're all broken because of something that's not really specific to that test. It's just like you've broken the endpoints so or the tests break. So having 100 tests fail doesn't add much value over having the one test fail in that scenario because it's still that oh yeah you just completely broke that endpoint.
2: I, I think that's it i think like um i think like I've, I've always thought that like like unit testing and automated testing and all that stuff like it's probably it, it can be learned you know and it's not not that hard but what's really hard is actually figuring out what to test and making your tests aren't brittle enough that it just breaks for any reason and, you, and you're just spending all this time maintaining it but also making sure that your tests are actually meaningful and actually testing the the right things. And those things are very um, they're very circumstantial, I guess. Um, and it's really dependent on the project and um, the experience of the person writing the code. Yeah, I've seen a lot of projects where I've basically worked on it, and there are lots of tests, but none of them are really testing like like anything. You know, like um, they're like the your, your, the, the the a lot of them are even just there just to have increased
1: that code coverage number. You know, so yeah, there's a like, um something I've seen in the past it's like oh we've got 100% code coverage it's amazing and it's like no 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 you've got 100% of code coverage of the code you think you have to write (laughs) but like if you totally missed a requirement and an edge case it's not going to work if you ask it to do that but Mm. because the code to do it isn't there so the code it makes no sense to have any code coverage of it because it's not there so yeah it's just like code coverage is good to know where your blind spots are but it's not a, a magic number that 100% means everything's bulletproof. Everything's great. It's all the sunlit uplands. Yeah. We've done our job perfectly correctly. Yeah. And also you're mentioning tests need to be like easy to maintain, but also they need to be easy to add new tests. Because if, you, if you've got like a more junior engineer that's say started on your team is not got as much experience it should be relatively easy for them to look at tests we already have, add some more for whatever changes they're making. Because Mm. if the tests are hard to write new tests, developers are lazy, they won't add new ones. And then the sort of the rot starts to set in over time. And then suddenly, oh yeah, we bring code coverage back just to make a point. Oh yeah, we had 90% code coverage six months ago with that test suite and it was all great. And now, six months later, and now we're at 40% coverage, what happened? And then it's like, oh, yeah, we made the test suite so complicated. No one wrote new tests for the last six months of work, and the coverage mm. dipped. And now, oh, now we need to like make a technical debt item to get back to where we were before. So, yeah,
0: Do you recommend a minimum percentage of code coverage?
1: So, my anecdotal number which I think I've see I've seen banded around a lot which I think is not far off and a good sweet spot is I'd say something like in the region of 70 70 because depending on what project you're working on you probably find that if you dug through a code coverage report you'd find a lot of the, the code blocks so like your error handling, and your edge cases, or like you're setting up your login configuration and things like that. So 70, 80, you know, four out of five lines of code sort of area, you're probably on average hitting the major use cases of your app. And what's left is edge cases and or like those infrastructure bits that you can't really hit when you're doing a unit test. Because I don't know, like Program uh, program.main, you're probably not calling program.main as part of a test because it's just going to hang and the web server is waiting for requests and you can't stop it.
0: You, do, you just exclude those from, from code coverage and then you can get back up to 100%. And everything you, you haven't ca- written a test for, just exclude from code coverage. 100%, yeah, got it.
1: That's definitely one way around it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah I, th- yeah, I definitely think once you get to around the 70, 80 point you're starting to get into diminishing returns and it becomes more of an exercise in chasing a metric rather than what, what are the spots in my app where I'm completely missing some test coverage that should be there. But I think the tricky bit of that is sometimes you have to have the discipline to occasionally go back and actually look at a visualized report rather than just seeing a number on a screen or a number in a report and going, so where, where is it that we don't have the coverage and actually like periodically going through the report reports and going, ah, that whole area of the app, actually we're not covering that, we're not testing it works. So what are you using to generate these reports? So um, the tool that I use regularly and we use in my team is called, uh, well actually we use two, t- two tools. So we use Coverlet to actually generate the coverage metrics in the first place. That's an open source library. And it plugs in really easily to the .NET Test SDK, and uh, we use the MS Build integration it has. So you just sort of add a NuGet package, and you can just configure a few MS Build properties to, like, say, uh, what namespaces or classes or attributes to exclude from code coverage, and you can also give it a minimum code coverage, and it will fail your build if the coverage doesn't meet that level, which is handy to stop or well, not stop let you know if you've started going down like a drift of mm. you were at 80 and you are getting, you're being a bit sloppy and you'll get and you're trending down it'll hit a level and then you'll just fail the build and the, although occasionally it leads to well i'm only adding this tiny thing and it doesn't make any sense to write any tests so i'm just going to change the number <laughs> but um yeah so we use that to actually generate the metrics and then there's another open source library called report generator and that can generate you HTML coverage reports from a variety of code coverage output formats like um, Cobertura and um, TRX files. I think it's TRX files. And you can then get yourself a HTML report and that is of your code files. So it can show you your code file, however your code structured. And then if you've covered a line, it's in green. And if it's not covered, it's in red. And if you've got like branches and you've like hit one branch and not the other branch of the code, like of an if statement or a ternary, then it will like shade it in yellow. So then you can go through those reports and you see the code as you would see it in an IDE. But then it's you've got all like the color highlighting on it. And then it's really easy to spot if you've got like a massive hole in your test coverage. And also you can sort of browse it hierarchically. So it shows you the metrics, like you can see the metrics at an assembly level, or it can go down to namespace class method. So you can look at it, say, at the namespace level and go, oh, why is this namespace 20% when all the others are 80, say, and then drill into it and then drill into the classes and then go, oh, actually, it's this one class. And then, oh, yeah, actually, we've got this huge class that's got hundreds of hundreds of lines of code in it. And we're not testing in it, and it's dragging the number down. And then you can sort of within your team then make a decision to go: Is it okay that this class is missing all of this test coverage, or have we got um, a hole in our and our testing here that we need to address?
0: Can you go a little bit more into the the setup and and teardown process? You know, what's what do you have to do there, and to make sure everything's set up right for your tests, and then when your test's done, what do you have to do at the end?
1: So in a Typical application for say an API that's doing some CRUD with the database. Then, as part of the setup process, typically what you would do is you would sort of you would change any configuration settings that might need to be changed for your test. So, for example, if you were calling an, like an external API, you might want to change the URL so that if your stubbing of your HTTP calls hasn't hasn't worked for some reason, it's going to talk to something that's not real. So like, for example, if, I don't know, if we were integrating with the GitHub API, I would change the test apps configuration for the URL to be like github.local, not github.com. And then I do similar thing with email addresses, like don't want to accidentally email real people from tests and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, you can change any appropriate configuration that you have in your test. Like, but, wait, but
2: wait, back to the email. So would your email, when you do your interaction testing with your email server, would you literally hook it up to a real email server or would you kind of just like mock it? or like, um...
1: So I don't actually work on anything in our system that does send uh. emails. I, we did, There was something at my old job where we did that and we just did mocks. But I think there was, I just remember there was a time where someone didn't set up some mocking properly and he, and he, he, and he like emailed himself because he'd put his own email address and he was getting emails from his test and I was just like just just make it something that's not real <laughs> yeah. if it goes wrong it'll like, go into a black hole
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah another thing's in the setup typically is another thing I'll often do is I'll reroute the logging so like if you're running a test and it fails it's useful to look at the application's logs because they might give you hints as to why it might have failed or what, like i don't know null no reference exception somewhere in your application your integration test probably isn't going to tell you that it's probably just going to tell you the server returned a 500 error http 500 error that's not useful for debugging in of itself it just tells you something's failed mm. so but if all your logs are going into a file somewhere on your local developer machine, then you've thought, oh, which file did the error log go into so I can go and find it? So what I typically do is you hook into the, the bootstrapper, the bootstrapping of the test server and configure a logger that routes to, in the case of XUnit, the XUnit output. So then what you can do is if your test fails, you can just look at the XUnit output and it has all the application logs for that that were during the lifetime of that test associated with the test, and then you can just open the test output and go, oh, there was there was a L reference exception on line 52 of Foo class. I'll just go and dig around in there and see what it is I broke, or just stick a breakpoint at the top of the area of the app where that test fails, and then run the test again and see what I hit. And in the case of if you were doing some stuff with databases, then typically, like creating a new database so maybe depending on what your data access code does on whether like you're using just using an ORM or if you're doing like actual low-level SQL commands then you might be doing commands that maybe aren't as portable between say SQLite and SQL server so then it gets a bit trickier to do like redirecting the database but for like simple SQL stuff I'd um, set up like a a SQLite database in like the temp directory on the local computer, and then run whatever commands we need to like uh, create the tables and, and seed any data. So that the, Isn't
2: there like a in-memory database that comes with .NET Core? I'm not sure if you've
1: used that one before. Yes, yeah, so EF Core, they have an in-memory uh, database provider you can mm-hmm. use, but I treat it with caution because I've been burned in the past before where I've done a query that works in link to objects, but it doesn't work in link to SQL. And then this this was pre um, .NET Core, but like you'd have a, te- have a unit test that would work perfectly well. And then when mm. you pointed it at a real database, it would go, I don't know how to turn that into SQL. And it would just throw an exception, or it would behave differently because in-memory projections versus um, SQL projections and things would slip through the yeah, net. I think
2: it's not completely the same as the real database. I think it's, it's, it's got things like it doesn't have foreign keys or something like that, or it doesn't respect foreign key constraints and things like that. I think the yeah. whole thing is it's designed to run fast because you want your test to run fast, but yeah, it's, it doesn't completely map to like a real SQL server database.
1: Yeah. That, that's where I found the shortfalls with it are, are things like foreign key constraints. Cause hmm. I, I think we've probably all done that bug that one time where you, um, forget to configure like the auto ID generation, and you run a test and it gets ID 1 and it works, and then you run the second test and then it fails because you've violated the unique constraints, you tried to put another ID 1 in, and with like the memory databases, because they don't check for those things. You have all these tests and they're all passing perfectly fine, you're like, yep, let's ship it, and then you ship it and then immediately (laughs) breaks, because you forgot about foreign key constraints.
2: So that's well I'm guessing like you have your automated test, but you do have real testers as so well, right? Now <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, and with um, like yeah. with like going back to the test pyramid with like the end to end tests, like as part of our deployment pipelines, we go through like a QA environment and a staging environment before production. So we mm-hmm. try and at least reuse what the test is doing, even if it's not the same code. And we'll have like our integration tests self host the app and talk to it directly on your local machine. But then we'll have our end-to-end tests that point at the deployed code in AWS and then they'll find that sort of thing. So you've still got a safety net for that sort of oops moment. But for, from the whole sort of like shift left with testing approach, is like finding your bugs then is a lot more expensive than finding it on your laptop before you've opened a pull request and asked your team to review it. It's a great point actually. I like, I like
2: that, yeah. Good way to yeah. Talk about the cost, yeah.
1: So. Yeah, because you don't use, like, it's like it's not even, like, monetary cost. It's just, like, your own productivity. It's, like, if you run all the tests and it's all fine, you do the PR and your teammates look at it and go, yep, this looks all fine. And then, I don't know, it takes 10 minutes to build in CI and then it takes 10 minutes to go through the deployment pipeline and then the tests run and it fails and it's broken. And it's like, oh, great. So to as well as having to work out why that's broken and then fixing it, once I've identified the fix and coded it, that's another 30, 40 minutes before I'm back at that point in my deployment process again.
0: Okay, we just got a few minutes left. Is there any last minute uh, tips and tricks that you want to give people on, on integration tests?
1: So something I've used in the past, well actually, not in the past, I use now, is a lot of people might work on something that is just like social login and like, oh, I need to log into my app. <laughs> before um, I can actually use the app to test the business functionality that I actually want to test. But I don't want to have to automate logging into GitHub or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, especially as a lot of those accounts really don't like bots or want you to use 2FA. It's like, how do you automate 2FA? And then you get into this whole mess of things. So something that we've looked into doing with our tests that use social login is there's a few extensibility apis in asp.net core identity where you can hook into the point where the app redirects off to the third party provider and then you can send it back to itself so instead of logging in to say twitter logging with twitter it sends the login request back to itself and then you can hook into that in your test suite and then you can just go yep you are logged in and then you can really speed up your UI tests because you don't need this step where you're trying to either go through real login pages of an external third party or you're trying to mint authentication cookies in code to just dump them in the browser to skip the process. So it's, it's a really handy little hidden away hook to sort of cheat the login process with tests. Good tip.
0: All right, great, great. So let's uh, move on to picks. Why? What's your pick this week? Okay.
2: Yeah. So this week, my pick is going to be a, a new TV show I've started watching. It's called um, Young Sheldon. So basically, it's uh, I'm not sure if you guys have seen the TV show, Big Bang Theory. It's um, it's kind of like a prequel to that. It's about uh, Sheldon, the, the main character on Big Bang Theory. He's like this super smart guy kind of thing. It's about him growing up. So yeah, so it's kind of a nice sitcom that I've been watching recently. So it's good.
0: Great. All right, Martin, do you have a pick for us?
1: So this week, this week in the UK at least, we got um, the latest series of what we do in the shadows, which I don't know if you guys have seen it before, but it's a sitcom about vampires, and it's a spin-off from a film that Jermaine Clement and Tika Waititi made about, I think it's about ten years ago, and it's about like some vampires who like it's what vampires really do. Like they're not all Count Dracula living in Transylvania in a castle. They just live in the suburbs of Staten Island, and it's about all the things they get up to. And um, we just got the third series of that in the um, the UK, and we binge watched it over the last two days, like all ten episodes, just the whole lot's gone. It's just so funny. I would really recommend it. And you, see, you don't have to be like a horror fan to like it. It's just, it's just it. It plays mostly off the, like all the, the pop culture tropes of vampires, but just in a bit of a weird and wacky way. Is, is it a UK show or a US show? So it's a it's a US show. I think it's on FX in the States, but we only just got it this week oh, on yeah. um, BBC iPlayer. So we, we got Cause... the whole series in one go because I think it's already been on in America.
2: Because hmm. no, I, I love UK shows, you know, UK, like in-betweeners and, and all that stuff. Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah i can be like i've probably watched those over and over again like two or three times now so yeah uk humor is just kind of funny It's awkward
1: so. <laughs> one of one of the um one of the characters in what we do in the shadows is like very english so like there's yeah. an element of that within the show even though it's um american tv show
0: all right so uh, my pick this week is uh since hockey season has started up again and i'm playing seattle has a new hockey team this year the first season that they're having a hockey team, and it's called the Kraken. So it's uh my my wife bought me a bunch of shirts and shorts and things like that for birthdays and Christmases and things like that. So uh, if you are uh, interested in hockey, check out the Seattle Kraken. So
2: Seattle has never had a, a hockey team. They it's they like, did okay. a
0: long time ago, but uh, yeah, it's uh they were be, been without one for a long time, and uh, that's a few years ago they that got approved for one. And they finally started playing this season. So if I get a chance, you know, maybe COVID gets better. I'll be able to go over and check out a game.
2: Yeah, that's something I've always wanted to do. Um, I don't know why I didn't do it the last time I went to America, but I'm actually seeing an NHL game. So Maybe one day. No
0: hockey in Australia?
2: Oh, no, we've got like one ice <laughs> rink in, in my city. Well, that's probably about it. So not, in, not cold enough.
1: So. Yeah, we don't have um, ice hockey either. Here, here, hockey means a totally different game with with <laughs> um, wooden sticks and grass. Yeah,
0: very right, cool. All right, Martin. If uh, our listeners have questions and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to to reach out?
1: So, if anyone's got any questions they want to find my way, the best place would be to uh, at me on Twitter. I can be found at, at Martin underscore Costello.
0: Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show today, Martin. It was great to have you.
1: No problem. It's nice to speak to you. Something different from. Um, to do with being stuck inside
0: I agree, I agree, (laughs) great thanks everybody and we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net